I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, four centuries in the afterlife of Joan of Arc. I don't know of too many other figures aside from Joan of Arc that can be repackaged, if you like, in so many different ways for everybody to this moment. I mean, there's a brand new movie about her childhood that just came out. French director Bruno Dumont has in fact released two films about Joan of Arc in as many years, one of them a musical. Clearly, the legend lives. My guest today, Gail Orgelfinger, is a medievalist by training and a founder member of the International Joan of Arc Society. She's also Senior Lecturer Emerita at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her new book, Joan of Arc in the English Imagination, 1429-1829, focuses not so much on the historical Joan as on her afterlife and the multifarious uses to which her legend has been put as the relationship between France and England changed over the centuries, as indeed did other attitudes, for example, to Catholicism and to women. Maybe before we begin, a quick recap of the historical Joan is useful. During a time of crisis in 1429, in the last phase of the Hundred Years' War between France and England, the young peasant girl Joan persuaded France's Dauphin, Charles of Orléans, as well as its nobility and ecclesiastics, that God had mandated her mission to raise the English siege of Orléans and crown Charles king. But barely a year after her triumphs, she was captured and sold to the English, who tried her on charges of heresy and, after months of interrogation, burned her alive in the marketplace in Rouen in May 1431. Joan's story has been told and retold in England for 600 years. In the Middle Ages, English chroniclers often portrayed her as a witch. But by the time Winston Churchill wrote his history of the English-speaking peoples in the 1950s, he called her an angel of deliverance, the ever-shining, ever-glorious Joan of Arc. In her new book, Gail Orglefinger sets out to show that the story is more complex than a straightforward conversion from witch to saint, more nuanced than a simple battle between those four and against Joan. Different writers could take radically different views on Joan in the same period, highlighting, ignoring, or fabricating different aspects of her story. When I spoke to Gail on the phone recently, 
we started with a 20th century Joan and a stained glass window in Leicester Cathedral, as an example of the Joan that English culture had arrived at just after the First World War. Well, it, it is a World War I memorial window that was dedicated, I think, in 1923. And it's, it's quite beautiful. It's a kind of a typical medieval organization with Christ in majesty in the center top and surrounded by four warrior knights, including Joan of Arc, who's in the lower left corner. She is the only of the warrior knights that isn't fully armed. The male knights are all fully armed. But what's interesting to me about that also is, is her girlish appearance she has cropped hair, and yet she's very pre-Raphaelite looking in the face. And she is holding her banner. She's not armed, although she has some armor underneath her cloak. And she's sheltering uh, a little girl who's looking towards the fire and Ypres in the background. So it's not strictly French, but the Belgians, close enough. But what's interesting is the, be- the, the middle of the window shows Christ descended from the cross in the arms of his mother. And the very first statue monument to Joan in Orléans had that very same figure with Joan and Charles VII kneeling before it. And that's been destroyed, but that we have records that show that same posture. But the lovely girlish Joan um, in 1923, we have to remember that Joan had been co-opted, if you like, by the suffragette movement, by the women's, the British women's um, suffragettes. She appeared on posters before World War I. She appeared in a procession in June of 1911, a woman dressed as Joan of Arc marching with the suffragettes. And so she wasn't meek and mild at all. And she was used in propaganda in World War I, both in America and in Britain, on posters. There's one from 1918 designed by Bert Thomas that reads, Joan of Arc saved France. Women of Britain save your country by war savings certificates. So I, although that, that goes beyond the time limits of my book to talk about those phenomenon, they, they were also in the memory as well as this girlish, protective Joan in the luster window. Yes, it, it is indeed. A, she's protecting a child, isn't she, in that image? Yes. And she's very much not, as you say, she's not in full battle armour. She's not the Joan g- going off to fight, is she? She's, she's much no. more like keeping the home fires burning kind of Joan. <laughs> and I guess people who maybe have seen that image or or other images like that, may be surprised to read your book and see just how fiercely contested a figure she was for many centuries. I mean, that's the most eye-opening thing about the book, just what what a potent figure in the English imagination she remained. Yes, and in unexpected places as well, absolutely. In the early modern period, she becomes a, peri- uh, a, a figure of the, the woman question, mm. uh, good or bad, for good or bad. And of course, in Shakespeare, which I think you want to talk about at some point. Yes. But everyone was just so confused about what to make of her. And the records were not completely available early on. We have to remember that it's all partial excerpts, hearsay, filtering through some of the French historians, but the full text of the trial wasn't published until 1840 in English, and in French even. The first English translation was in 1934, I think. So it, this legend, this, this figure of Joan is based on little pieces of the mosaic, never the full picture. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that you said that 
given all this writing and debate that she had generated, that her own, well, I was going to say her own words, but you also point out that the trial records in Latin and French recorded what she said in the third person. So we're already at one remove. And then the fact that it actually took till the 20th century for those records to be rendered into English, yeah. I, I found astonishing, really, given the, yeah. given the amount of writing, you know, the amount of ink that had been spilled by then. Yes, yes. Um, some of it was beginning to come through in the in the late um, 1700s, but the record is not complete. And there's a great deal of... Some texts were ignored, shall we say, or not taken into consideration, some of the French texts. And we don't know enough about how many books were printed in an edition and how many French books were imported into England, or whether English writers who traveled abroad were able to look at some of the French histories. And so it really is a mystery in some ways to know how some of the information filtered through. Mm. And that's that's an ongoing dynamic, isn't it, between the two yeah. cultures. Um, and you've, there are fascinating examples in the book where a translation from French really isn't a translation. It's, a, it's an elaboration or an emendation or a, an interpretation. Um, so, so writers, when, even when they're bringing material into the English language, are taking often a, quite, quite, a, quite a free hand with how they render it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Changing translations, changing um, the story to add, in some cases, negative views of Joan um, is, is what I found so interesting about it too, yeah. So, I mean, if we were to be a little bit schematic about it. Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to say that Joan comes along at a particularly important time in French and English nationhood and the respective relationship between those countries and also the fact that she is a woman and that those two things are what provide the sort of, as it were, the sort of combustible material that, that, would, <laughs> that would sort of fuel the, um, that would fuel this um, ongoing debate about her importance yes, and her absolutely. significance. absolutely. And in fact, I had originally hoped to track Joan's afterlife in England against French-English relations. I wanted to look at the question of nationalism. And when I started doing some background reading on that, I realized that I really, I'm not, by training a historian, um, by training a literary historian. And I looked at the material and I thought, you know what? Know your limits. <laughs> and so I didn't track that as thoroughly as I would have liked to. It would be a great project for someone to do. But this is a case of if only, if only, if only. Charles the Dauphin of France was, I think, the fourth or fifth or sixth son. There was no question whatsoever that he would ever become the heir to the throne. But his older brothers all died. So if one of his older brothers had lived, to had lived to maturity, things might have been very, very different indeed. If Agincourt had not proved to be this unexpected, quite unpredicted victory for the English, things might have been very different indeed. If the French culture had not at least admitted the possibility of women's mystical prophecy related to politics, Joan might not have been listened to at all. So there's a great deal of if only this, if only that, that didn't happen, I think, that enabled Joan to be credible and looked to as a, I won't use the word savior because I don't want to go there, but as a means to reanimate at least French morale. You didn't want to pursue a strict chronological um, march through the centuries. You wanted to look at it, at it by genre. 
And so mm-hmm. I wondered if you could say, in what genres does Joan first start appearing? When we go, when we go all the bit way back, what are the mm-hmm. sort of modes of writing into which she is recuperated? There are two, one English and one continental. It's the English Chronicles. The English were very interested in writing their own history by the 15th century. In English, that's, I think, the difference. There were all those monkish chronicles of the early Middle Ages. But in English, it begins in the late 14th century with the beginning of the compilation of the Brute. And then the London Chronicles, the the city men, the merchants who had great interest in what was happening politically, because obviously it it affected their well-being, began to record these city chronicles. And there is where she's first mentioned, even before her death. Not her death is mentioned at all. They don't talk about her execution or her capture. Well, they do talk about her capture. But it's this witch who scared the English troops. Then later in the century, we have inventing the tale of her pregnancy in order to calumniate her. So that's one strain. It's these early chronicles that are already in Caxton's time, right after the reign of Henry VI and the beginning of Edward IV, to... um, manage her reputation so as to make her look demonic almost. But at the same time, Johannes Nieder is writing his treatise on uh, witches and includes Joan in that. And he was very, very, very widely read. So at the same time, the English are using witches as just kind of pejorative. I don't think they literally believed she was conjuring. Nieder basically accuses her of being a witch. And that's a little bit before the, the great inquisitional witch trials. So there are these two parallel strains, European and English, going on. But it's the recording of history where she first appears. Yeah. And that, that charge of witch sticks, doesn't it? Even though you point out it goes through different modes, and by the time you get to the Gothic period, it's, it's almost been done as a sort of literary joke, isn't it? But it's, but yes, it, but it, it is. But it's, something, it's a label which does adhere. And even if authors are invoking it to dismiss it, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's almost like a, an epithet that, that gets readers you know, to, take, to take notice. Exactly, a marketing yes. kind of a ploy. Yes. But, but what I found so interesting is Thomas Haywood and his history of women has a whole section on witches, but Joan is grouped with English warrior women. So he made a deliberate choice in his history of women very early, this is 1624, I believe, to change her identity, to move it from which, which is what Shakespeare ends up portraying her as, back to or into the warrior woman group. He knows about the whole idea of pleading the belly, and he talks about crime and punishment in book eight of his Panacheon, but he never mentions that in connection with Joan. So I think Haywood is, is really, really important in showing the deliberate ignoring of cultural norms about Joan and changing them and giving her a good reputation. Now, you've mentioned Shakespeare once or twice, Gail, and I, I, did, I did want to, to talk about his representation of Joan. Yeah. Before I, I rang you this afternoon, I was looking to see which of Shakespeare's plays is, is least performed and least consulted, and you're probably not surprised to know that Henry VI <laughs> is, is, is pretty much down near the bottom of that list. So I think it may be the case that quite a lot of people, even theatre-goers, 
are unaware of Shakespeare's portrayal of Joan. They maybe know that he did portray her, but not quite how. And what you say about his time and the politics and the the ideas and the debates that were circulating then is absolutely fascinating. So maybe you could just say a little bit about Shakespeare's portrayal and set it against the the backdrop of of what was going on in, in Elizabethan England. Okay. Actually, I've been fortunate enough to see Henry VI Part One. There's a reproduction of the Blackfriars Theater in the state of Virginia. And about 10 years ago, they put it on there. So that was a very wonderful experience for me. It's very difficult to stage. It's, it's, it's a crazy play, probably not even by Shakespeare entirely. Well, very little of it. But the play was written probably in the early 1590s. There may have been an earlier play, including Joan of Arc by Peel or someone like that, but we don't know for sure. But this is right after the conspiracy led by Antony Babington to assassinate Elizabeth and put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne of England. Elizabeth is now in her 60s. She hasn't named an heir. She doesn't have children. It's been a very long reign. And given the turmoil of the early Tudor periods, I'm sure English people were very anxious about what might happen. When I started thinking about Joan in the play, having done a lot of other reading, because this is one of the later chapters I tackled, I knew already that there were going to be a lot of different views of Joan preceding Shakespeare. Gabriel Harvey, David Clapham, there were others. And as I began to read more about Mary and the Reformation, I realized that some of the literature on Shakespeare, which looked at Elizabeth as a figure of Joan in the play, not to say she's not there, I'm not trying to dispute other people's work, but that Mary was a much scarier prospect. They're French, they're, they're Catholic, they represent a threat to English monarchy, both of them. And I began to think about that and reading more and more of Hollinshed and the, and the other Babington poems, it just struck me as this has to be about Mary in a lot of ways. Not that Joan is Mary, I make that point very clearly, but Mary represents all that English feared, I think, after Elizabeth. And I think Joan reflects those fears in the play. As I write, her very first speech, if you're a good English Protestant in 1591 or 1592, and she claims transfiguration at the hands of the Virgin Mary, Our Lady, she calls her, Mother of God, then you are hearing someone who is an enemy right from the start. The French are taken in because they're French and Catholic. But if you're a good English Protestant, you know right from the very beginning that this is not a good character. So that's kind of what got me, what got me started thinking about it. And they, they both, as you say, are seen as figures whose speech leads men astray. I thought that I, I wrote that down in my notes as, a, as an interesting way of, of viewing them. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier about... Joan's words being muted about about it being difficult to have access to what she actually said and and sounded mm-hmm. like but men i guess found something dangerous in women who could command attention in this way indeed and if you look at some of the um religious controversy of the 16th century especially after the reformation women were not allowed to speak on religious matters in public and indeed, Edward VI, well, not he, but his, his minions, burned Anne Askew for preaching publicly against transubstantiation. So the stakes, pardon my pun, were very, very high 
for women who spoke forthrightly at that time. And what I find so fascinating about the play is that Joan's speech is eloquent all the way until the very end. Her speeches are, in turn, braggadocio, as in the first speech to Charles, but then her speech to Burgundy is astute politically because the Duke of Burgundy historically went back and forth and back and forth. Philip the Bull the Good was a very interesting political manipulator in that way. Her speech to reanimate the French forces when uh, there was a breach. She said, let's, let's just forget this and go on militarily. I mean, it's exactly what a leader should do. And at the end, her protestations that she was not born of a peasant and so show the failure of her eloquence. At the end, she's not persuasive at all. And so her speech, though, becomes progressively, as I, as I argue, degenerates. And yet it's still eloquent almost to the very end. It just loses its power at the end, as Mary's did. I mean, she was also so defiant of her questioners. And although the play, after Shakespeare's lifetime, sort of falls into a neglect as far as stage performances mm-hmm. is concerned... It does figure in later published editions of his works, obviously in in illustrated editions. And that sort of leads on to the really interesting iconography of Joan, which is partly um, sort of amplified through the the, the Shakespeare publishing uh, industry. And I I thought you had some really interesting things to say about how Joan was portrayed and as as we've been saying in in literature also in iconography she's she's yes. she's very polyvalent so, so many projections can be made upon this figure and could you maybe pick out some of the, the the most interesting things that you you see going on as um as the centuries go by in in ways that um that Joan is depicted Yes, well, the first thing, the first illustration that I found that I've identified in an English text is, of course, Thomas Fuller's The Holy State and the Profane State. And let me just say here, I fell in love with Thomas Fuller when I was doing the research on him. He becomes a very fascinating creature. But the engraving by William Marshall shows this kind of amiable woman in a plumed helmet with kind of crooked eyes, not at all a witch, not looking like a fierce warrior, just looking like an average girl. She's just sort of amiable is the only word I can say for her. It's not at all the the witch. But then again, Fuller was so ambivalent about Joan himself, not you know telling the reader, well, we really won't know what she really was until Judgment Day. Um, he was a, he was he had a good sense of humor, I think. But then we move on to the Henry the uh, Six editions, and I find it interesting that when Nicholas Rao published the first illustrated Shakespeare uh, in 1709, he had a frontispiece engraved for each individual play. Now. The hero of Henry VI, Part I, is really John Talbot. You would think that would be what you'd see on the frontispiece, but what you see is Joan of Arc entering the city of Orléans with the doors open and the peasants cheering. And that's such an interesting choice to me. I can't account for it. But it's very clearly a woman's figure. It's very clearly Joan of Arc in triumph. And that just strikes me as a, a, just an interesting interpretation, although the engraver was French, so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, later on, um, you have these, I guess they're sort of like collector's cards, but although they appeared in, in, in editions of Shakespeare of actresses posing for paintings that were later engraved. These actresses never played Joan of Arc because the play was not produced one time in, in 1738, but these engravings are late in the century. 
in costumes that would not allow you to fight, in long skirts and plumed headdresses. Although the poses, especially of Anne Stewart in this rather pre-revolutionary flowing gown, um, if you look at contemporary engravings of the goddess Minerva, she's very reminiscent of those. It's quite interesting that they're trying to reframe, I think the artists are reframing Joan in terms of classical images almost at this time. So I think the Anne Stewart one is very interesting. She's not, it's too early for a Marianne character in the French Revolution, but that's what she reminds me of, some of those paintings of the revolution showing women as liberty. Um, she has her flowing gown and very feminine. That's interesting what, what you just said, because throughout her afterlife, there are efforts to try to compare her to other female figures, be they mythological yes. or historical. Again, yeah. in an attempt to, I suppose, categorise her, recuperate her in some, some bigger narrative in order to tame her or explain her? Is that, is that how you see those sort of comparative? I would say yes, to, to contain her. Especially later on, if you put her in a, in a small box, warrior woman or witch, then you don't have to deal with the complexity of her reputation. So they do try to box her. I was fascinated by John Shirley's History of Women, where he talks about Joan of Arc in the introduction and then never discusses her in the body of his text. So there's the both the, the inclusion and exclusion. We can talk about her, but we're not going to include her. And that goes on more and more, I think. You have to, you, you can't ignore her, but you can't, right. you can't quite deal with her in a way that entirely dismisses her. So Exactly. In, in some of the early 19th century moral exemplar books, like Mary Pilkington, Joan is nowhere to be found. When do we first have evidence of women writing about Joan? Is that an 18th century phenomenon? Well, it depends on whether you talk about French or English. Right. Let's the say this. The first poem about Joan right. was Christine de Pizan's um, poem written after Orléans. But I believe, unless quote unquote anonymous was a woman, it would be pretty much the 18th century. But again, literature is ephemeral. Early books were in small editions. So I wouldn't say there wasn't something. We just don't have something that survives until about the 18th century. So the things which do survive, again, what kind of modes and approaches um, are, do we see beginning to emerge then? They are female biography. It's a, a genre that became popular in the 18th century. There were a few earlier, but it's based on, of course, going all the way back to Boccaccio on famous women. Uh, and that becomes a very popular genre all through. But then women begin to write it in the late 18th century. Mary Hayes is the major example I use, her amazingly alphabetical compendium. The Biographium Feminarum is anonymous. We don't know whether that was a man or a woman. So it's beginning in the last quarter of the 18th century. Mary Hayes was a name that I, that I jotted down to ask you about. What is her take, to put it, to put it crudely, um, on, on Joan? She has a kind of take because she's using mostly Hume but she's also using some French sources as well but basically she sees Joan as actually a, a figure of female decorum she emphasizes her virtue and her good behavior she sees her and this is not new but she she's one of the earliest English writers I think to talk about this as a victim of men as betrayed at court as betrayed at Compiègne as not ransomed by Charles 
so that's a kind of a really interesting feminist turn. Not surprisingly, because Hayes had written a very wonderful obituary of Mary Wollstonecraft a few years previously. And she had also written an appeal to the men of Great Britain to give women more credibility and rights. So she, I wouldn't call it a modern feminist approach. It's not. But she's extraordinarily sympathetic to Joan in a man's world. And that's what you come away from her with, I think. Now, I wondered, why did you decide to stop at 1829? Because clearly consideration of Joan goes on. You you mentioned Michelet p- publishing his Histoire de France in 1841 and that sort of opening a floodgate for more considerations on both sides of the channel and, you know, going on to the 20th century as we've already alluded to and we've got Saint Joan from Shaw in the 20s. So did you just simply have to draw a line somewhere and, in order not to be overwhelmed? <laughs> well, yes, in part I did. And, and 1829 is a little bit arbitrary. The last two works I talk about in the book are 1830 and 1831, but I, I like the neatness of it. I feel fairly comfortable working through the Romantic period. I've taught all the way up to that, from medieval to Romantic. I am not comfortable talking about the Victorian period. I just don't know enough. I haven't studied enough. I haven't read enough. So I felt that, uh, again, as with the nationalism thoughts, I needed to know my limits. And that was one, definitely. Another was that, as you say, as I said, Michelet opened the floodgates, and I simply didn't want to get drowned in them. Yes. (laughs) Because that is when the contention of nationalism comes into play. And the Victorians went wild on Joan. And there was just simply too much material that I didn't really feel I was qualified to handle. And indeed, I had to cut a great deal of material for the final text of the of the book as it was. So it would have been another whole book, really. And it's been done. People have done fine work on the 19th century and the 20th century in Shaw and Twain. And I wanted to strictly stick with British English more than British even. I didn't want to go into other... other um, cultural context for her quite yes because the, the the flood you know to continue the metaphor the floodgates open and the, the a whole floodplain perhaps opens up <laughs> in, in front of your eyes and, absolutely and what if i can ask you what i mean because you you've obviously done a great deal of archival research what sort of sustained what was the sort of sustaining thing that kept your interest while you made your way through all these documents and archives and and writings about joan would you say it's kind of the breadcrumb effect you find something and it refers to something else and you look that up and then that raises other questions. So you look those up. And so it's just a continuing cycle of allowing your mind to follow through. So I have a a mind that connects things more by illusion than logic so that I love just following these little trails and seeing where I wind up. And that's ever fascinating with Joan of Arc. You really never end. Um, I did have to focus eventually and write an outline and and decide what I was going to put in and leave out. But I just gave a, a talk a couple of weeks ago at an art class and was discovering some new things about 15th century images of Joan. So the curiosity, she's ever fascinating. And I would tell my students who wanted to do projects and got really excited because I used to teach a course on Joan of Arc, be careful. <laughs> because once you plunge into this, you will be caught and you will never get out. <laughs> I was talking to Gail Orglefinger about her recent book, Joan of Arc and the English Imagination, out now from Penn State University Press. More information about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in this series at thehedgehogandthefox.com.
You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.